0: This is Sundial. I'm Carlos Frias. Five years have passed since Alea Eastman hid beneath the body of her classmate who in death saved her life. Four years have passed since Alea told Congress what happened that day at her high school in Parkland. She begged them to act with sensible gun laws. Three years passed. Alea left for college. She chose a school in Washington, D.C where she's spoken in front of small rooms and huge crowds. She became an activist, forced into the role by the day that changed her life. The day a student with a rifle shot and killed 17 people at Marjory Stoneman Douglas High School. That includes classmates like Nicholas Dorette, whose head she laid gently on the ground before she ran. Almost a year has passed since it happened again. 19 kids and two of their teachers were shot to death in their classroom in Ovalde, Texas. President Biden signed the first federal law in decades to address guns last summer. Today, in Florida, almost to the day of the anniversary of the shooting in Parkland, there's a push for a new gun law in the state legislature. This law would make it easier to carry a gun. Concealed, no permit required. Aleah Eastman joins us today from Washington, D.C., where she's in college and still speaking out. Welcome, Aleah.
1: Thank you for having me, hello.
0: Elia, one of the things that struck me was that almost immediately, you were speaking in front of thousands during a March for Our Lives rally in Washington, D.C. What was it like to kind of become an activist overnight like that?
1: It was quite scary and nerve-wracking, especially considering that I was only 16 years old at the time, Wow! and just experienced the most traumatic experience of my entire life. Um, so, you know, originally when the the incident happened, I was not open to speaking out publicly um, because I was so traumatized and really wanted to focus on healing. Mm -hmm. Um, But then I had a conversation with my mom and she told me that my story could possibly save another young person's life. Um, So when she told me that, I definitely felt like it was now my duty to speak out. Um, And I felt sort of like empowered um, to get my story and voice heard. Not only because I experienced a school shooting, but because you know, as a young Black woman in this country, this wasn't my first interaction with gun violence. Um, so it definitely was was quite scary, especially speaking in front of such a large crowd for the first time ever. Um, but it was something that needed to happen.
0: Uh, we actually have a clip of you uh, speaking in front of that cloud, uh, that crowd in uh, Washington D.C. Do you mind if we play it and, and flash back to that? To that speech that day?
1: But I'm not only here to speak about school shootings, I'm here to speak for the urban communities have, that have been speaking out about this way before February 14, 2018. Their voices are just as important as ours, and they need to be heard
0: you immediately were talking about the gun violence in minority communities. And you mentioned your mom playing a role in saying that it might help for you to speak out and talk about your family's experiences with it. Can you talk about that a little bit about your family's history with gun violence?
1: Absolutely. Um, So over 10 years ago, my uncle Patrick Edwards was shot and killed in Brooklyn, New York. Um, I was very young at the time. um, And my parents hadn't been in america for a long time at that point really um and they had already been faced with the immense pain that gun violence causes
0: Alea, where, Uh, where were your parents from
1: my parents are from trinidad and tobago
0: and so very recently they had they had emigrated to uh to new york and and this is this is how they were met
1: right yes exactly my my mom came here with her Eight brothers and sisters, and the first experience that they they had was with gun violence, and she lost her youngest brother to the disease of this violence.
0: What a horrible, what a horrible incident, and and what a way to be introduced to the to the gun culture in this country.
1: Absolutely, yeah, and and when we think about it, a lot of people that leave their home countries, they're leaving to escape. The same violence. Um, and that played a role in why my my grandma decided to bring the family um, over to the United States was to escape some of that violence that Trinidad is facing and even they're still facing today. Um, but, you know, a lot of families have seen that you might escape violence in your home country, but you're coming here to the U.S. to, to see and experience even more violence. Um, so it's an issue that a lot of families feel like they can't escape. And coming to the U.S. is definitely not um, an escape route anymore because the violence is is so prevalent here.
0: How did you guys, uh, uh, what were the conversations like in your family home in those days after that? I mean, especially having the background that you do have where you guys have already had to go through this once already or rather your, your mom and, and family did.
1: Yeah, I mean, the conversations were definitely difficult I think my family was just really focused on making sure that I was okay. And really in that moment, to make sure I was okay was just being there and supporting me. It didn't really necessarily look like having conversations about gun violence or what we, we can do moving forward to solve it. At, in those immediate days, it was really just about being there and supporting me. And in those days, I really didn't wanna talk. I, I, didn't, I didn't have any any feeling to want to be a public speaker. I didn't have any desire to go on national stages. I really was really reserved before the shooting happened. I was a very quiet girl in my classes. I I would speak if, you know, I was called on, but I wasn't an outspoken person like I am today. So the conversations were really just focused on making sure that I had the support that I needed. Um, And eventually the conversation changed and it changed into a conversation of how Am I going to feel empowered to empower other young people that are impacted by this issue to speak up and speak out and not be complacent with the fact that these mass shootings and community violence is happening every day?
0: You, you and your mom were pretty honest early on that access to mental health was a big issue, and this was a uh, and you guys were struggling with that uh, to finding resources and folks that would talk that you'd be able to talk with about these issues. Can you
1: Absolutely. Yeah.
0: Can you talk a little yeah. bit about what what you saw and what you learned from that experience?
1: Yeah. Um before the shooting I did have experiences with therapy um and talking to a professional to kind of iron out whatever I was experiencing through for example through puberty because purity is hard for a lot of children. Sure. Um, so before the shooting, years before, I did have experiences with talking to a therapist. So it was something that was familiar to me. Um, but now after the shooting, I don't need therapy to help me with purity. I need therapy to help me with trauma. Um, and it was a totally different meaning and reasoning behind therapy and getting mental health um, resources.
0: Yeah, and and- so- and what did you learn about about how accessible those those resources were like for regular folks yeah. you know
1: yeah a lot of these these resources are are not accessible for example you know i i went through my own experience of not being able to find a therapist that was covered by my insurance that was a huge problem and, and honestly it's still a mm. problem today yeah. now that i'm in college and i'm no longer in florida i'm in dc so it's it's difficult to find therapists that are covered by your your insurance and that specialize in what you particularly need and for my case and a lot of other cases from school for for students from my high school, um, we need therapists that specialize in trauma. Um, And, you know, it, it can be hard and we've we saw it with my high school after the shooting we didn't have resources other than having grief counselors in the media center. But each time you went to the media center, you got a different grief counselor. So now you have to re-explain your story of what you just survived less than two weeks ago to a different person every time you need help. That's not adequate, that's not support, and that's definitely not what we needed in the immediate days after the shooting. So that was just a clear example for like a school that has money and a school that has resources, not being able to put in place the needs of those students And it makes me put into perspective like I can only imagine other schools that don't have the same amount of money and resources like Douglas, what they're experiencing for for their students, they don't have the same resources as well. So it's, it's definitely a difficult conversation, but I think it's a conversation that more people need to have, because in order to solve this issue of gun violence, we need to talk about it from its root and mental health is a big part of the conversation.
0: The the part that interest, uh, that I saw that you became interested in right away was talking about the the way that minority communities are impacted, and sure. and will you talk about that a little bit about why uh, something it was something like thirty eight days later you were on stage and you were talking about really paying saying let's pay attention to some, to some of these communities who've been talking about these issues of gun violence for a long time. Why, why was that important to you?
1: Yeah, um, it was important to me because I feel like in the immediate uh, days after the shooting at my high school, we saw not only a national, but a worldwide spark in the conversation of gun violence is an issue. And a lot of the times I notice on media or on the news that when we people were talking about gun violence, they were only talking about it from the perspective of mass or school shootings. Mm. And that caused a misconception with the public, the public believes that mass shootings happen all the time, although recently we've been seeing that they have been very consistent in 2018 it, it definitely wasn't as common as it is today so. I really wanted to make sure that people recognize that mass shootings only happen about two percent when we're really talking about gun violence. The majority of gun violence really happens in our black and brown communities that don't have the resources to support the people that live there. Um, And and the issue of gun violence is also systemic. So I really wanted to shine light on the fact that there have been people that have been talking about the, the fight to end gun violence for decades before the kids from my high school decided to step up and talk about it. Um, And that was really important to me because I felt like we really need to highlight the advocates that, you know, have created this pathway before us. um, And that have been talking about it long before we've even experienced gun violence. Um, And I also feel like a lot of black and Brown youth, they want to talk about the pain and, and and the different things that, they're impacted by in their communities, but because they are black and brown youth, they're excluded from spaces or simply ignored. And that was something that was really important to me because you know, I'm a young black woman um, and I, I went to a predominantly white high school where I also experienced not being welcomed in a lot of spaces. So it was really important for me to shine light on that because we continue to see that disparity in this conversation.
0: So you you kind of act as an avatar for that. You've been you've been a uh, a spokesman in your activism, specifically highlighting those communities. Yes. Can you
1: talk? I like to think of it that way.
0: Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that? About the you know because we tend to think of like this thing, this shooting that happened in Parkland as this whole, and then you you realize, like you said, there were some spaces where you felt like you were still not not welcome or felt a, a little bit outside. Can you talk about that a little bit?
1: Yeah, um,
0: because I think other kids can can and, and other people, you know, uh, whether you're, you're, you know, high school or not, can empathize with that.
1: Absolutely. I think in perspective, we have to be honest, like when the shooting at my high school happened, and a lot of the young people from my school were speaking out, majority of those kids that were speaking out, if not all of them did not look like me. Hmm. Um, And it was so bad to the point where when I came to different cities like DC or Brooklyn and I would meet with young black children that grew up around gun violence, they'd be like, wow, there's black children that went to Douglas. I can't believe it because the media only showed those faces and only shared those stories. Um, When in reality, there is a, not a huge population, but there's a population of, of, Black students that go to Douglas and that also deserve to share their story as well. Um, So that was something that was disheartening to experience because, especially because I was in the building where the shooting happened and I really felt like my story deserved to be heard. Um, But it was hard because I didn't always fit the description of Parkland survivor. So a lot of the times I wasn't welcomed and included in spaces
0: that must have been really hard and how did you how did you find support in that like with you know um who who came to your who came to your support to to your rescue so to speak you know
1: well i will say that um an amazing organization called the brady center to prevent gun violence um they were the only people that shed light on my story and that gave me an opportunity to really share my story Mm -hmm. And that's really how I got involved with the nitty gritty work of gun violence prevention is working with with Brady. And we were able to formulate a youth organization called Team Enough, which included the youth that I'm talking about, the youth in inner city communities that don't have the opportunity to do this advocacy and that don't have the opportunity to share their story. Um, And that's really where I found my home in this space, um, because sadly, my home wasn't with the other students that went to my high school um, because I wasn't allowed in a lot of those spaces that they had created. Um, So I would say that was a a big part of my journey was finding um, a group of people that really supported me and wanted to hear my story and wanted to share my story. Um, And those people were at Brady.
0: Alea, um, I want to continue talking more about that journey that you've taken, uh, but we're going to take a little bit of a break. Uh, We're talking with Alea Eastman. Uh, She's an activist, a college student, and a Parkland shooting survivor. We'll be back in just a moment on Sundial. We're back on Sundial, and this is Carlos Frias. Our guest today is Alea Eastman. She's an activist, a college student in Washington, D.C., and a Parkland shooting survivor. We're talking with her today, uh, as we approach the five-year anniversary of the Parkland shooting. Alia, you talked a little bit about um, how important it was, how important it is to highlight voices like yours, which were young Black women, y- young uh, people of color, and uh, minority communities, who um, are sometimes overlooked when you when the issue of gun violence is talked uh, is talked about. Wh- what have you discovered in the years of that you've devoted your yourself to activism? about how the attitudes about gun violence have have changed or have evolved, or have they?
1: Yeah, I think the attitudes of of gun violence have changed. I feel like a lot of people are now recognizing how crazy and ridiculous this disease of violence is in this country. Hmm. Um, It's completely preventable. And it's so preventable that it's ridiculous that we haven't put in place measures to prevent a lot of these shootings from happening. Um, And I think we're at a point now where people recognize the problem and they wanna do something about it. Mm. There's just not enough people in positions of power who are driving that change um, in legislature or in in, in federal federal, um, positions. So I think although we we have more awareness on this issue, we need to get to a place where we are being proactive about this violence um, and and making sure that we actually have tangible things in place to support not only those that have been impacted by this issue, but communities that are dealing with this day to day.
0: So how do you how have you seen that is the best way to change that? In other words, I, I, you know, short of losing someone who's uh, who's lost a loved one to, to gun violence. How do you change people's minds? How do you get them to to be brave enough to make a big change rather than just feeling bad about it?
1: Yeah, I think one thing that a lot of people in this country are, are starting to recognize is that bullets don't discriminate. And no one is exempt from feeling the pain and terror that gun violence causes. Um, and it's now to the point where it's no longer a question of if you will ever be impacted by gun violence, but when. Hmm. I feel like everybody in this country knows somebody that knows somebody that has been impacted or has lost a family member. Um, And it's so common now that gun violence is a conversation that people are having every day. I haven't had one class session in college where gun violence or a mass shooting has not come up in a class discussion. Um, And I think that is how we we change the culture of guns is really bringing this issue on an educational front and really not being afraid to have these conversations in schools Um, and with young people because again young people are the ones that are disproportionately impacted by this issue and i think that also plays a role in why people are talking about it a lot more because for the past few years we know that black youth were were the most impacted by gun violence. It was the leading cause of death Hmm. for Black youth, but now it is the leading cause of death for youth across the country, period. It's no longer drugs, it's not car accidents, it's nothing else but gun violence. And the fact that something as preventable as gun violence is the leading cause of death for youth in this country is absolutely absurd. And I think parents, teachers, and children have just had enough and I think that plays a role as to why we are now at a place where it's so commonly talked about. And I feel like people are now getting to a point where they're okay with having these uncomfortable conversations.
0: Did it Did it help you? Because I, I will say uh, this month will be three years since my, my own dad was shot and killed by an act of random gun violence. i sorry. And, and thanks. Um, and I wonder, and I know that for me, it, it helps to, to talk about it. In other words, to not to try to not be fragile um, and, and take those things and really turn it into uh, a discussion, you know, because I feel like one person's story can make a difference. And I'm wondering what that's been like for you to, to kind of take those things that can be scary and then have these difficult discussions with people when you have a firsthand account.
1: Yeah, I think for me, I've been in a lot of spaces where the people that I'm talking to and communicating with about this issue, they understand exactly what I'm talking about. Even for example, this interview, you understand what I'm talking about because you've also been impacted by this issue. Um, And I think that's something that I really appreciate about my advocacy and my journey um, because I've been able to make really great sustainable relationships with not only young people impacted but adults that have been impacted and teachers that have been impacted. Um, and I think we all play such an important role in this conversation, not only because we understand how it feels to be impacted, but because we know what the solutions are or what some of the solutions can be. Um, and I think that is a big part of like my journey of, of speaking out and, and engaging with other communities um, because people understand what I'm talking about because it's just so many people have been impacted by this issue.
0: Talk, talk to me a little bit about solutions when you say that. What, what are the things that you that you hear that, um, that you feel like make a big difference and that people should understand would make a big difference?
1: One thing that I really like to highlight is that people that are dealing with gun violence on a day-to-day basis in their communities, they know their communities better than anyone else. Mm. Um, and I think when we're talking about solutions, it's important to really center the people that are from the communities that we're talking about. Um, because they know what they're they're missing and they know what they need. That is um, such a
0: that is such a smart way to look at it. Really, to really ask the people who are being affected. Right.
1: Right. Exactly. Um, and that's really what frustrates me about our government. I feel like they like to make their own solutions and their own band aids on the real solution. For mm. example. That whole conversation of arming teachers and active shooter drills, like all of those are Band-Aids on the real solution. It's not solving gun violence. Um, And I think in order to solve this issue, we really need to center the people that are dealing with it day to day. Um, But one thing that I can say is that a lot of these communities lack resources Mm. uh, because this violence, again, is systemic. Um, They don't have access to what we were talking about earlier, like mental health resources. A lot of these students don't even have adequate resources in their schools. They don't don't have books. They don't have computers. Um, Some classrooms don't even have things like pencils and pens. Like A lot of these communities are really under-resourced, and I don't think people realize how this plays a role in gun violence, Um, because a lot of times, for a lot of students, the safest place for them is school. And then once they step out of school, it might be a war zone. Um, So we really need to make sure that we're putting in actual tangible resources for students in these communities. For example, having after school programs um, and having sustainable jobs for parents and not just jobs that will help them paycheck to paycheck, but sustainable jobs where parents can create a career and actually create a foundation for their young people um, that might be in their household. And that's just something that I like to think of when we're talking about solutions, because I feel like it's so easy for people to say, yeah, we need universal background checks or we need to ban assault weapons. Yes, that's also a part of the conversation. But let's also talk about the communities that don't have literally
0: anything. Right. It's 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 much more of a complex issue and it's a much bigger issue than than people want to say. I'm curious about what you thought about when uh, that that first federal legislation in something like 30 years was passed this summer. Um I, I again since you're so clued into really paying attention to the details of it, what did you think? Was it was it a band-aid solution like you said earlier or, or did it do something significant in your mind?
1: Are you talking about the bipartisan safer communities?
0: Act? Yes. Yes, the one okay. that's, uh, that signed I want to say in June of this year of uh 2022.
1: Yeah. I think that is an amazing first step. I think, honestly, for gun violence prevention advocates across the country, we're just grateful to get any little slither of hope and help that we can get. (laughs) Um, But to me personally, I do think that that is the bare minimum. Um, I do think that we need a lot more in place to really change the culture of violence in this country. Um, But any small victory is a victory. And we have to be we have to be grateful for it especially because we haven't seen any movement in this in this particular sector of of violence that this country is dealing with we haven't seen any movement for years years we haven't seen anything happen um, so to see that that um, bipartisan safer communities act move forward i think was a great a great way for us to know that our work is doing something and we are being heard but again, it is not an end-all, be-all, and I do think it is a the bare minimum for what we really should be doing in this country.
0: And at the same time, I think about this this Florida law that's that um, that's in the, the Florida legislature that's being pushed forward, where they're making uh, they're asking for it to be easier to carry a concealed mm-hmm. weapon. And I just I wonder, you yeah. know, here we are on the the fifth anniversary of of Parkland, and I wonder how you receive that news, you know?
1: Yeah. I, I'm so glad you brought this up because I've been talking about it so much and I think for me the state of the the, the direction that the state of Florida is going right now is scary and to me it literally makes no logical sense um, because we're seeing Florida legislature move towards making more guns accessible and and making, people that might be a harm to themselves or other people be able to carry guns into places like schools or places like a professional um office building or a grocery store like that makes no sense to me and instead of protecting children florida they're trying to protect children from books instead of guns and that makes no sense to me because we're focused on removing books from schools while we should be focused on removing guns out of the hands of people that can harm our children.
0: Do you still have family here in Florida?
1: Yes, unfortunately, I do. <laughs> my mom still lives there.
0: So this is an issue. I mean, you're not just talking uh, from a Washington D.C. perspective here. You, you are concerned for your family who still lives here. Yes,
1: I'm in Florida about four months out the year. So I'm still, I still go home very often. You know, my mom's there, my dogs there, I have my grandmas there, some of my aunts are there. So i do have a small percentage of family that's still there um and it's scary because my little cousin he he goes to he's he's in he's going to high school next year and that's something that i still have to think about is is what he's experiencing in school and what he might be afraid of in school because they're having things like threats every other day or or people saying that they want to come to the school and do something and that's very real and very scary for young people and and it happens so often and i've been seeing it happen here in the dmv area as well i i noticed that a lot of schools are dealing with shooter threats all the time and it's just something that honestly is so scary to me and i really feel like florida has the power to make floridians and children in florida safer and they're going in the complete opposite direction because we have examples of what permanent carry can do in other states. We've seen it in other states; it's made gun violence increase tremendously. So to me, it's just baffling that we're even going in that direction because we know that that does not work.
0: You mentioned a little cousin who's in school here in Florida. Have you ever have you had any discussions with him about about this? Uh, I mean, uh, like you said, this this has been issue with his when your family for years you know, going back to your uncle uh, being shot and killed. Um, what what discussions are, what what is that like with him?
1: Yeah, I haven't really had any uh, conversations with him about gun violence because when I'm with him, I try to be fun and yeah. <laughs> I try not to get into that rabbit hole, especially like when I'm with family, it's, you know, because I talk about this when I'm at work. I talk about it 12 hours of the day, sometimes 24. So when I'm with family, I, I try to, to not talk about gun violence as much, but I have had these conversations with, um, for example, my partner, um, her little brother goes to school in in the DMV area in Maryland actually. Um, and just last week, he didn't go to school because there was somebody saying that they were gonna come to the school the next day and have a shooting. Um, mm. And I really had to have a conversation with, my partner and I was like, well, obviously he needs to stay home, but he's only like six years old. So how do you have that conversation with a six-year-old of like, this is what's happening and this is how you stay safe. And and really like, there is nothing that you can say in regards to staying safe because school should be the safest place for young people. They shouldn't be afraid to go to school. Um, so I think it's just overall a really hard topic. And I think that's been a, a big conversation of like, what we've been talking about at my job of how do we have this conversation with younger generations? Because they're seeing this, this this violence on the internet, they're seeing it on their phones, they're having these conversations in school, but how do we make them feel safe? And how do we make make sure that they're not being terrorized by this issue of gun violence as they're going to school and just simply trying to learn?
0: Uh, we're speaking with uh, Alea Eastman, uh, she's an activist and she's a Parkland shooting survivor. Uh, I want to come back, take a little break, and come back and talk with you about the message that you have been talking about uh, ever since the shooting almost five years ago. Let's take a little break, and we'll be back in a minute. We're back on Sundial. This is Carlos Frias. Today, we're talking with Alea Eastman. She's an activist, and she's a Parkland shooting survivor. Uh, She spent the last several years speaking out about the issue of gun violence. Alea, I want to flash back a little bit. A year after the shooting, you were on Capitol Hill. Uh, You were talking to the House uh, Judiciary Committee, uh, giving testimony to them. There's something in your voice here that is uh, so powerful that you heard then that you can still hear today. So I'd like to play it for just a minute and then ask you about it.
1: Rather than listen to special interests, I ask you to listen to the nation's young people and the overwhelming majority of Americans who have had enough. We have had enough of gun violence in our schools, in our movie theaters, our places of worship, in nightclubs and restaurants, on our streets, and in our communities. Enough.
0: When you hear that, can you feel like that, making that statement in front of that kind of group, kind of set a path for you?
1: Yeah, I've actually been able to testify before congress twice um in the early years of my advocacy and particularly the first time it was definitely extremely nerve-wracking mm. because i was very young but i have never felt so empowered in my life um especially as a young woman of color having the opportunity to not only share my story but the story of so many others um in relation to gun violence and have people in positions of power actually sit back and be quiet and listen to me for five minutes. That was the first time that I really recognized that my voice is power. Um, And me being able to do that, especially, and I keep saying as a young woman of color, because I I didn't have any representation at that age of anyone that looked like me doing things like that. And I just wish that I could share that with so many other young Black girls um, that look like me in this country, because it's so hard, especially as a woman, have a moment to really share not only your story, but what you want to see changed.
0: Did you feel like after the shooting, did it influence in the way what you wanted to do with your life?
1: Yeah, I think being in this, this journey of activism definitely solidified my end goals and and definitely helped me specify what exactly i want to do in the future Um, because again before the shooting happened i'm sure it's really hard to believe but i was that quiet girl in the back of the class that did not speak unless i was asked a question and that was just because not because i didn't have anything to say i definitely felt all the things that i'm feeling but being a black girl at a predominantly white high school and not only just my high school but I experienced that in elementary school as well oftentimes students didn't want to hear what I had to say um, and I wasn't welcome to like the study group and things like that so that kind of in turn made me more quiet and reserved but after the shooting happened I, I, I don't know I felt something like sparking me where I wanted everyone to hear what I had to say and I think that's just in itself extremely powerful because it, it definitely changed the trajectory of, for example, my personality in itself. I'm grateful for the voice I've been able to to gain through this journey.
0: And it seems like being able to use your voice and telling people these first person stories is, is really meaningful.
1: Absolutely. And again, it goes back to my point where I'm always in spaces with people that understand exactly what I'm talking about because a lot of people are impacted by this issue. For example, you know, I've been in in spaces where I've asked people, you know, raise your hand if you have been impacted by gun violence or you know someone that's been impacted by gun violence. And every single hand in the room would be raised. Um so for me to be able to share my story on a personal level has has been amazing. It also has its downfalls because, you know, sharing your story over and over continuously is definitely traumatizing in itself. And I probably have shared my story over 500 times. Um, And that could be hard. But I do think in the very beginning of my journey, it played a huge role um, in my healing.
0: Can you talk about what your next phase? So you went to college and you went to college in DC, which seems which feels very symbolic, right? Of when you when you when you follow this path of you see this thing that you want to dedicate part of your life to, and you move to the place where it seems, this could most you know most easily happen you know where you can make the most change. Can you talk about what that what that's been like for you living in DC and you know, as as you follow this path?
1: Yeah, uh, I think as soon as I first got it started in advocacy, I knew I wanted to go to college in D.C. Mm. I feel like it's the perfect environment for a young advocate or just any young person that wants to get involved in change. I think it's the perfect place to be. Um, and in these past four years, I've been able to do a number of internships. I've been able to, you know, have my dream job at the time and work for a gun violence prevention organization and and get paid to make the world better. And I think that in itself is a unique opportunity and something that I'm extremely grateful that I got to experience in my years of college. Um, And I think also we're right outside Congress. Like I could go walk over there right now and go into our office and talk to a legislator and tell them what I experienced and what I need to see changed. Um, and that's something that is uniquely related to DC.
0: Can you talk to me a little bit about, uh, what you're studying in school and, and if, does that help advance this, uh, this, this goal of yours?
1: Absolutely. So my major is criminal justice. Mm. Um, my minor in psychology Um, And my end goal is to go to law school and become a criminal defense attorney in the future. It might change, it might not, but that's just (laughs) where I'm at right now. Um, And I think, again, my journey of advocacy has definitely solidified that this is definitely the route that I want to go. Because the things that I have noticed and learned about our criminal justice system is just extremely unacceptable. Um, and it's something I'm really passionate about. So I'm really excited to embark on a new journey these next few years um, of really honing in on what I want to do in the future.
0: You know, and, and this leads to to a kind of another question, which is if you're if you're really paying attention to the legal system, I'm curious about how you feel about um, the way the jury voted in the in the trial of uh, of the man who who shot your your classmates in Parkland.
1: Yeah, um, I was just actually just having this conversation in class um, because it's a very interesting and difficult topic for me. Um, in a perfect world, you know, I'm against the death penalty. I think the death penalty is um inequitable. Um, uh, I think a lot of people that are serving a death penalty are, you know, innocent. And a lot of people we have seen have died and, and weren't guilty of the charge. Um, And I think that plays a role into really how I feel about the death penalty. But in the case of my personal experience, I think it's absolutely absurd that an individual can go into school and shoot 34 people and kill 17, um, and in a state that actively uses the death penalty, not receive the death penalty. And in my mind, it just raises the question of, if a school shooting of this magnitude doesn't constitute for the death penalty, then what does? Yeah. What does? I, I don't know what could be worse and more powerful than than something like that. It just doesn't make sense to me. And it makes me confused because there's people in the state of Florida that's serving the death penalty for something that is not any way in relation or near. The magnitude of this shooting. Um, so to me, it's just disgusting that this person gets to walk away with their life while seventeen families are here suffering um, from what they caused.
0: And and obviously, it seems it's a very personal issue because I guess uh, during that during that trial and and you know when the, the verdict was read that it was he uh, received uh, life in prison, um, th- there were folks who felt differently, some who, who felt like you said, you know, like in general, in general, the, the idea uh, of life in prison versus the death penalty. And there was, there was a little bit of, of tension there. So I guess that, that, that must've made it uh, a lot harder to to move past this point uh, knowing about that.
1: Yeah. And I think in relation to the death penalty is such a, a, a touchy topic that I think, you know, for me, all I wanted to see out of that was whatever the parents of, the children that were murdered, whatever they wanted would have made me happy um, because they're the ones that are, are suffering immensely because now they don't have their child. Um, and to see the disappointment in a lot of the parents' faces um, and and just witnessing the feeling of just defeat and upset, being so upset by something like that, it, it just really hurt me. and again, it gets back to the point where like, I just can't fathom if something like this doesn't constitute for the death penalty, then then what does? And I, I just don't understand the direction in which Florida is going. I, I just, I, it can't, it just doesn't make sense to me.
0: You, you mentioned the, the families uh, of those who've lost lost loved ones there. Do you have any kind of relationship with, with any of the survivors? I mean, uh, I, I know that others have gone into activism as well. And uh, do you have any relationship with those families?
1: Absolutely. Um, I still talk to actually my teacher. She, she moved to DC too. So we, we live pretty close to each other. Oh, we wow. talk and yeah, I know it was, that was definitely God right there <laughs> helping me out because I definitely needed somebody that could relate to my pain and trauma and hearing that my teacher wanted to move to DC. It was just, I just felt like I, I was seeing angels <laughs> when she came um, because it's hard moving away from home and, And, you know, everybody in Parkland understands what we experienced that day and what we felt, but moving out here to DC, nobody really understands. And oftentimes I'm I'm put in situations, like for example, yesterday at my college, you know, I get people are curious, um, but one of my administrators had shared with students that I survived the shooting Mm. Um, and I wasn't there at the time. So, you know, naturally humans are curious and I get that. Um, But I walked in the door and then some girls bombarded me and they were like, I I, I don't, they were like stuttering and they didn't know what to say. And then they were like, oh, we heard you survived the shooting. Can you tell tell us your story? You want to know your story? Oh boy. And I'm like in a situation where I'm stuck and uh, I don't want to share my story right now. It's not the time and place. And I don't want to be re-traumatized, but you know, people are curious. But you know, when I go to Parkland, I don't have to worry about that because nobody's going to ask me that. And that's just something that is different, especially for a lot of other young people that have moved away from Florida after the shooting. Um, but again, hearing my teacher moved here and being able to work in an organization with others that might not be from Parkland, but are from cities that experience something similar makes it so much more easier um, to do this work and to be here.
0: That leads, I think, to a good question, which is what kind of questions do you do you wish people would ask you, you know, when they, when they know that the that shooting affected your life?
1: I wish more people asked me about me. Yeah, I think a lot of people ask me questions about my experience. They ask me questions about my city. They ask me questions about my school. But they never ask me questions about who is Aleah Eastman and who was she before February 14th, 2018. Um, and that's just not something people ask. They only care about the after. Um, And that's just something that I had to deal with for the past five years, and I get it. I'm definitely not upset by it, uh, but it can be frustrating when I'm when I'm constantly defined by my experience um, and what I went through. Because yes, what I went through plays a huge role in my life, but my experience is not me, and that's not the only thing that comes with me.
0: Will Will you tell us a little bit more about that? Because I remember reading that uh, you're you're a you're a violinist. Do you do you continue to play? Is that still part of your life?
1: Yes. Um, I was a violinist in middle school, in high school, um, but unfortunately I did not continue after high school um, because it was just, I, I played the violin since sixth grade and I was able to play with three different orchestras. Wow. Um, and it was definitely fun and I really, really, really enjoyed it growing up. Um, but again, after the shooting, my interests changed um, and my trajectory also changed. Um, and it was no longer about, you know, getting into a school so I can get into a good music program. It was more about how do I get to D.C. so I can make sure that no other young people have to deal with gut violence. Um, and that's just the sad reality of of what happened yeah. because I experienced what I experienced. Um, but yes, I, I did play the violin for some time and I really, really did enjoy it.
0: And, and what else, what else uh, about you should, would you, would you love people to know and ask about?
1: Yeah, I think for me, I'm just, I feel like I'm quite, quite average. I feel like I'm <laughs> very similar to so many other 21 year olds, but because I've experienced so much and gone through so much, a lot of people kind of view me as like not 21. Right. <laughs> so, um, well, but what- I like the same. I love music. I love dogs. I, I'm a huge, huge, huge foodie. I love food. Like I can talk about food for hours. Oh. The same way I talk about gun violence, I could talk about food.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, you're in the right city for it. And I'm I'm the uh, former food editor. So we could have a whole other show about really?
1: that. Wow. That's amazing.
0: <laughs> so, and I guess that's, that's the point is uh, where do you find joy these days? And I guess that those are some of those areas.
1: Absolutely, yeah, I, I love food, I love music. I'm quite adventurous. I, I might be afraid to do something, but if you really want me to do it, I'll try it. Um, I've, you know, been whitewater rafting, something I never would imagine I would've done, but I did that, I've been skiing. So, you know, I've just really been focused on just being more adventurous and, and trying new things that I wouldn't have been open to trying beforehand.
0: Uh, before I let you go, uh, you mentioned music being a real source for you, a real source for joy. So uh, tell me about your playlist. What music is bringing you life?
1: Oh, I love that question. So my favorite artist is Kendrick Lamar. He brings me life every day. Okay. I love I love his music. Um, I love Rihanna. I've been listening to her a lot lately. Of course, I, I can't not say Beyonce. <laughs> um,
0: she's
1: been rolling around in my playlist lately.
0: Okay, what song do you got on repeat right now?
1: The song that I have on repeat is actually a pretty popular song. It's been all over TikTok, but it's called Boys a Liar Part Two by Pink Panthers and Ice Spice. I think that's how you pronounce their names. Um, But I think it's just so catchy and fun and positive to listen to. So that's pretty much what I've been having on loop. (laughs)
0: I hope we can all play that and I'll keep that on loop in our own heads and stay positive and stay hopeful. Alea, thank you so much for taking the time. Of
1: course. Thank you so much for having me.
0: That was Alea Eastman. She survived the Parkland shooting five years ago today. She's a vocal activist against gun violence and a national organizer with team enough. And that's Sundial for Tuesday, February 14th. Leslie Obaye Atkinson is our lead producer. Elisa Baena is our producer and social media editor. Sergio Bustos is WLRN's VP of News. Katie Munoz is our Director of Live Programming. Our Director of Enterprise Journalism is Jessica Bakeman. Our Engagement Editor is Katie Lepre Cohen. Our Digital Editor is Mateo Sanchez. Peter J. Meritz is WLRN's Vice President of Radio and Sundial's Engineer. You can download a podcast of this program. Search WLRN's Sundial on your podcast app. There's no Sundial tomorrow. We're preempted by the Miami-Dade County School Board meeting. We're back Thursday with another live program. I'm Carlos Frias. Thanks for listening.